0: As we begin this morning, I want to ask you, what investments do you prioritize with the greatest seriousness and earnestness? When you think of those 100 and 500 and 1,000 hour blocks of your time, what do you invest in? I know that a lot of us may think of blocks of time investment like a career, maybe raising your family. Um, An educational degree, maybe someone's involved in that, I've I've done that. Maybe a writing project that seems to never end, I've also done that. Maybe a language learning investment, I've also done that. And it doesn't happen in 30 days, just in case you were wondering, contrary to what you hear. A sport, a musical instrument, um, perhaps a ministry commitment. I can relate, as I've said, to a number of those. In fact, for the last 20 plus years, my family and I, have organized our investments around cross-cultural church planting in unreached language groups. And I had the privilege as a missionary kid of growing up in those kinds of environments. So with, along with my family, I've spent what feel like many half-lives invested in non-English speaking cross-cultural contexts from the Amazon basin of Venezuela and Brazil to the tropical rainforest of Papua New Guinea to Denton, Texas churches there, to Mexico most recently for three years, and then now in Arkansas, which does sometimes feel like a foreign language and culture, I must admit. And, you know, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul also regularly discusses his priorities of investment, his primary responsibilities. And this Apostle, by the time he's writing the book of Romans, where we'll be today in in 57 AD, he's in his early to mid-50s. He's completed his third missionary journey already. He's a mature and seasoned veteran of significant apostolic ministry with battle scars, graying hair and beard, some of you can relate, I can see, I can see out there, weathered lines of concern and suffering and disappointment and relief and endurance and joy etched into his face. He's a church planning road warrior, if you will. He's traveled far beyond youthful enthusiasm or ministerial romanticism. He's he's gotten past that. And he's now earnestly focused on his highest priority investments in what he is called to as an apostolic minister of the gospel. He's planted many churches. He's traveled far and wide. He's trained generations of leaders. He's sharpened his own understanding of God's truth the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he suffered greatly, he's endured betrayal from those he thought were colleagues and friends, he's faced much heartache, and he's written heartfelt and doctrinally rich letters back to churches and individuals that he ministered to, and whom he sacrificially served and loved over the course of his ministry years to date. So by the time Paul composes the book of Romans, he's a man who's already paid his ministry dues. He desires to finish his race well and to give the Romans the privilege of joining in with his ministry efforts. While young people sometimes think they're going to live forever, I I, I know that happens, apostles who take up a grace-based cross of Christ don't. They realize they won't. They feel, in fact, along with Paul many times, the acute pressure of persecution and suffering and imminent death, and I I can just imagine as Paul was experiencing stoning, or prison, or the whip, or shipwreck, or later the bite of the viper, he may well have been asking himself in each of those instances, I wonder if this is finally the end of my life, and I'm going to go enjoy seeing Jesus face to face now. So this is a man who's been in mortal physical danger many times, and that has a way of focusing your priorities. I. I'm sure you could think of examples in your life of that. I can. I can think of examples. In fact, following Christ, as I've said, by denying yourself and taking up that cross should sober us. And and just encourage you, as disciples of Christ, it should be sobering all of us every day. Because that's who we are. Not, not only those who go overseas, but those who stay. And that should cause us to regularly assess along with Paul our life priorities. And so, in light of those many Circumstances, lifetimes of circumstances, that Paul had managed by this point in the stewardship of his apostleship, with the assurance of more challenge to come for Paul. There always was more challenge to come for Paul. He had to determine what would and would not occupy, consume, and waste his time. And in fact, when we get to Romans fifteen, eight to thirty-three, we find Paul earnestly explaining his priorities to the Romans. He's a leader, shepherd, elder of the church. And he wants them to understand, as, from my view as an apostle, what is it that I feel responsible to prioritize and why do I feel responsible for that? I can relate to that set of decisions in my life too. I don't know about you, but I'm not getting any younger. And um, in my remaining years, in your remaining years, no matter what your age, what are we responsible for as followers of Christ? How should we run the remainder of our race faithfully. And so as Paul scans his future ministry horizons, he reflects here in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 33. Now, typically I'd read the whole of the passage, but for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to read as I go um, and highlight some points along the way. But in these verses, we're going to see how Paul defends his priority for continuing to plant churches among those that he describes as unreached Gentiles. That's that's Paul's defense of priority. Specifically, he explains three reasons for prioritizing church planting ministry among unreached Gentiles. And this is going to be the way we outline our time this morning. Three reasons why Paul prioritizes ministry among unreached Gentiles. Number one, he believes that confirms God's faithfulness in Christ confirms God's faithfulness in Christ. Number two, he believes that it confirms his own fruitfulness in Christ. And number three, he wants to complete Christian fellowship in Christ. So, certifying God's faithfulness, I know I used a different verb there, but that's okay. I'm correcting myself, in case you are wondering. <laughs> certifying God's faithfulness, confirming Paul's fruitfulness, and completing Christian fellowship in Christ. And... As we approach this passage, then that will be our outline. Now, before we begin in chapter 15, we need to at least establish context for why I can even say that Paul was focused on unreached Gentiles, okay, because we can make that claim, but we can't assume that unless we see Paul describe that previously. So if we flip back to chapter 1, if you want to flip back with me quickly, I won't take a lot of time, but if we flip back to chapter 1, we see uh, some specific instances of evidence where Paul... Talks about this unreached um, Gentile focus, and I want us to see this because if we don't see this, we don't feel convinced that that's indeed his, his priority. So, Romans chapter 1, 1 to 17, which is everyone would see as the introduction and the, and the ultimate theme statement there in verse 16, 17 for the letter to, uh, of Romans. Uh, if we skip down to verse 5, we see that Paul says that through Jesus Christ our Lord, at the end of 4, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul is specifically describing his responsibility for the gospel to go to non-Jewish Gentiles, right? By definition, Paul, when he talks about the nations, he's talking about Gentile peoples. And in fact, Paul makes the key commitment or comment in verse 14, if you look down to 14, he says, I am under obligation to both the Greeks and to barbarians, he says. Now, when Paul refers to Greeks and barbarians and being under obligation or in debt to Greeks and barbarians, what is he talking about? Well, commentator Douglas Moo, who's a well-known Romans um, commentator, he's written a fairly thick book about Romans, he writes that in this pair of of nouns, Greeks and Romans, that Paul is uh, talking about those majority language ethnicities or subcultures without the gospel, when he uses the term Greeks. So majority language ethnicities or subcultures without the gospel. Maybe bilingual people who are from other ethnic groups, but who've grown up in the milieu of that um, Greek-speaking Hellenistic world environment. Uh, that the Romans were involved with, and so they knew majority languages well enough to understand the truth. But on the side of barbarians, Mu clarifies this way. He says barbarian is an onomatopoetic word. There you go. Remember your English, right? Onomatopoeia, does anybody know what that is? Like buzz in English, or beep, or um, boom. Those are all words that they sound like what they mean. And so Paul sa- or Mu says that in the Greek... Uh, world at the time that this described, so bar bar describes the way that uncouth foreign languages sound in Greek ears. For example, when we were in Venezuela, we worked with a people group called the Yanomamu, and the Yanomamu had another people group who lived close to them, called, they called the Kobadi. and I didn't know at first why, but the, the word kobadi is, believe it or not, doesn't sound automatopoetic to you, but it, it is to the Yanomamu people, so there's a noisy jungle buzzard, that goes, kobali, kobali, kobali. That's the sound they make. So they would, they would reference this people group as noisy, noisy jungle buzzards. That was the name they gave to them. It was, it was really polite. You know, we, we, they all enjoyed it very much. But Moo continues, Douglas Moo continues, and he says, Accordingly, the word barbarian is widely used in Greek literature of all non-Greek-speaking peoples and often connotes the supposed inferior culture of such peoples. So my point is is that with using the terms Greeks and Barbar, the barbarians, Mu is stating that Paul intends to designate all of Gentile humanity divided according to linguistic cultural criteria. And that's important because in order for Paul to describe a focus on the Gentiles and to explicitly say that as he's planning his ministry priorities, that he feels indebted or under obligation to Greeks and Barbar those who speak those languages that would be mocked as unsophisticated. And so as Paul's planning his next Gentile mission, and he's still planning another one to Spain, he specifies that obligation. And I'll just tell you, I doubt, I doubt, because my grandparents, when they started doing mission work, they thought there were 500 languages in the world. I doubt Paul knew. And I'm glad for the sake of the apostles that when they stood there, on the mountain with Jesus in Matthew 28, and he said, all authority is given to me, go and make disciples of all nations, pan tata ethne, to all language identities in the world, they probably didn't know there were 7,000 of those, right, because there were only 12 of them, and 12 divided by 7,000, 12, it's a lot, right? But nonetheless, in God's economy, that Paul understands at least, that as he surveys the known world at the time, that he feels a clear debt of obligation to move beyond majority language environments where Christ has already been named, to see Christ proclaimed among the barbar, among unreached languages and cultures without Christ. And of course, here in, in verse 16 17, Paul states that he feels so strongly about that obligation. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So in Paul's understanding to the Jew first and to the Greek, and in that context, Paul's using the word Greek the way he often uses it, just to mean Gentiles in general, right? So Paul is saying the reason this has to be done is because Christ is the only exclusive means of salvation for all peoples everywhere. And so Paul's taking up that kind of priority conviction and commitment, and now let's flip over just quickly, again, to Romans chapter 10. As we move towards 17, um, because it's important for us to also understand that Paul recognizes that the words of the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for salvation from sin must be intentionally and intelligibly communicated. So when Paul says, where Christ has not been named, he's not talking about someone hearing the name Christos in Greek, if they speak a language where Christ has not been named. He's talking about the proclaimed, intelligibly proclaimed message of the truth to Greek and barbar. And that, he makes that clear, in fact, in Romans chapter 10, having just said that both Greek and Gentile need to come to faith, he says in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him, in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed in what, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so for Paul, the urgent fact of the need for the whole of the Gentiles including the barbar bar, to clearly hear the word of Christ must must be taken must take place through intelligible word communication through goers like Paul. Are you with me? You following me? All right. So when we arrive now in Romans chapter 15 8 to 33 our passage here, now we're going to explain in light of Paul's view of unreached gentiles in light, light of his priority just how he thinks that priority fulfills the the message of the gospel. How does Paul's priority relate to the message of the gospel? Paul believes that only a gospel that prioritizes church planting among the unreached Gentiles fulfills his commission as an apostle of Jesus Christ. His gospel focus toward unreached Gentiles achieves those three purposes that I mentioned. In the mind of Paul the Apostle, These are the three purposes that he feels like his commission to those unreached Gentiles achieves. Certifies God's faithfulness in Christ, confirms Paul's fruitfulness in Christ, and um, completes Christian fellowship in Christ. Now, if we wanted to say that another way, we would say that in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 33, Paul argues that without the inclusion of unreached Gentiles and those who've had opportunity to hear and receive the preached word of Christ, without the inclusion of unreached Gentiles and those who've had opportunity to hear and receive the preached word of Christ, God is not faithful in Christ through the gospel. Paul is not fruitful in Christ through the gospel. And Christian fellowship is not complete in Christ through the gospel. So you see this picture that Paul's setting up here I'm going to spend most of my time to, to be merciful to you um, on point number one, and then we'll walk quickly through points two and three. And I want you to see these three points illustrated in the text here. So stay with me. I know that this is a sermon that has some reasoning in it, and I just need you to stay with me. I, I'm just, I, hey, I'm just trying to imitate Paul, okay? You know, Paul's always easy to understand. That's what Peter said, right? So. <laughs> First, then, now, first, then, in verses 8 to 13, Paul is saying that his focus on unreached Gentiles certifies God's faithfulness in Christ. In other words, Paul is deciding to prioritize unreached Gentiles because he wants to declare God truthful, faithful, and accurate to his promises in the gospel. Now, how is Paul doing that? So he wants God to be seen as faithful, accurate, and truthful in the gospel, so let's read verses 8 and 9, and we'll start to see Paul unfold that argument, okay, of this idea of God's faithfulness in Christ in Paul's priority. Verse 8 says to us, for I tell you that Christ became a servant uh, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, okay, you hear it, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order, so there's two purpose statements here in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order to in order that the gentiles might glorify god for his mercy so god's truthfulness connected to the patriarchs promises and connected to mercy to the gentiles and we're seeing that argument develop there so what's paul saying here he's saying christ came to this earth to become a servant to the circumcised those who are physical descendants of abraham to prove The truthful and faithful character of God. Namely, that Christ served as the revealed agent who certified with his life that God's eternal promises to the Jews were completed. In other words, based in Christ's work, God is truthful and faithful, Jew. Paul is saying, you who are Jews, God is truthful and faithful to you because of the work of Christ. Okay, but track with me, because Paul says that in two kinds of ways here. Again, I'm testing your high school English logic now. So Paul says that in two ways. How is it specifically? What are the two ways that Paul says that God vindicates his truthfulness through Christ's service? How? Well, first, in verse 8, Paul is describing that God has now specifically fulfilled or confirmed his covenant promise of redemptive blessing, so that promise God made, to the forebears of the Jews, and he uses the term patriarchs, right? So when you hear the word patriarchs, with me I hope you think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and then Moses. And so through Christ, God has unfolded and completed all of those previous and specific what we would call covenant promises to his people, the Jews. And that would include all the ancestors of those who are Jews in the church in Rome. So all of those promises of physical blessing and spiritual blessing through Christ for Abraham and his descendants are now fulfilled in Christ. That, that goes back to, uh, if you want to look at some point and you don't know what I'm talking about with, when I talk about the Abrahamic covenant, you, we, we can go back to Romans chapter 12 and you'll see that there where God says to Abraham that you'll be blessed and in you all nations will be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant, and then the Mosaic covenant later where God says to Moses and to the people that they will be God's own special possession, a royal priesthood, like we we sang that in one of our songs. So in, in, in Christ then, all of those covenant promises that were specifically intended for the Jews were fulfilled. And they all build on one another. We can even go back into the creation covenant in Genesis and, and the Noahic covenant in Genesis and see the way they progressively build towards the fulfillment for the Jews of God's promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ was the diaconos. That's the word that's used here. It sounds a lot like our word deacon, because it is. Christ was the, the diaconos, the servant, the first one to fulfill the covenant promises to the seed of Abraham. Christ was that intermediary, that agent through which God certified himself as truthful and faithful to his promises and the covenants. Now, that's important because God needs to vindicate his own character, does he not? And so when Christ came as a servant to the Jew, as a descendant of Abraham himself, he offered salvation first to the Jews. Christ's sacrifice was testifying to God's truthfulness and faithfulness in all of those covenant promises that God has, had made. And what he says here, in effect, is that Christ sealed those covenant promises. He certified them with the stamp of his own blood. So when Christ gave his life for the Jews, when he came from the Jews to the Jews, he sealed that covenant agreement of redemption for them. In effect... We have God, Yahweh God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, stating to them, Jews, in Christ I have fulfilled all my covenant promises that I made to your ancestors, the patriarchs. In Christ, you Jews, now have access to the redemptive rest I promised to you when I chose you as my people. Covenants fulfilled, signed by Yahweh God, the covenant keeper, sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Finished. For you, but, but Paul's not done here because, importantly, in keeping with the character of God, then Paul goes on to say that in another purpose clause here, that God proves himself faithful and truthful through Christ as a certifying servant or agent um, to the unreached Gentiles as well, that in order for that promise, the extension of that promise to be proven true, that God must also seal unreached Gentiles in the mercy of of the lord jesus christ in fact we see that represented as i've already mentioned in the abrahamic covenant that the gentiles also must glorify god for his mercy they must have opportunity for faith to come through hearing and hearing through the word of christ why because as i've said paul knew his old testament paul knew that god had not only made covenant promises to abraham but in abraham's seed all nations of the world would be blessed and so spiritually, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, Gentiles are those also who need to understand the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you still with me? You following me? So logically for Paul, then, he shows now, he goes on in this particular passage, and I, I promise you, this is the longest point, so I'm not going to do this until 1205, okay? But, th- th- this, but but Paul shows in the rest of this particular point of God's faithfulness in Christ that every major section of the old testament proves him correct about the gentiles. That's what Paul does now. He's made a point about Jew and Gentile. Now he's going to say and by the way, everything in the old testament tells that what I'm saying now to you about Gentile inclusion in the covenant of the blood sealed covenant of Christ is true. Here's how he does that. And and uh, Douglas Moo again comments on this that Paul proves from every part of the Hebrew Old Testament that the inclusion of Gentiles with Jews in the praise of God has always been a part of God's purposes. So if we go to verse 9, and you read with me there, Paul starts, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Okay, that's a quote from the Old Testament. Those are prophetic statements from 2 Samuel and from Psalm 18, and we're not going to look those up from two of the three major sections of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the Hebrews divided their Old Testament differently than we do, just so you know. They called it the Tanakh, and Jesus references this in the Gospels. The Law, Prophets, and Writings were the divisions that they used. These two quotes come from the Prophets and the Writings. So we've got two major sections of the Old Testament covered. And then in verse 10, uh, Paul says, And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's a prophetic statement from the law. So now we have all three of them. We have three uh, all of the Hebrew Old Testament tonight covered in Paul describing this prophetic promise of God that the Gentiles would be included in God's covenant promises. And in Psalm 117, he, in verse 11, he, he quotes Psalm 117 and says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. So that's another writings uh, promise from Paul. And in fact, in Psalm 117, I won't take time to go there, but the Hebrew author uses two words for describing the Gentiles. He uses both ethnic Gentile groups, so he uses the word nations, and he also uses the word tribes or peoples to to provide coverage in the Hebrew mind at the time in Psalm 117 that all the Gentiles would submit and trust in God's covenant name, in his faithfulness, and in his steadfast love. So that prophetic reference point in Psalm 117. But finally, and really importantly here in verse 12, Paul quotes Isaiah, and this is a a verse that came through one of our songs again today, Isaiah 11.1, to discuss the specific goodness of Christ, Jesus Christ, who would be the future shoot of Jesse. The one who fulfills the Davidic covenant as well. So Paul's now swept in all of the covenant promises of God all the way through David. The one who would be the eternal messianic king whose reign would never end and whose rule provides eternal hope of salvation for Jew and Gentile because he quotes here, and again Isaiah says, this is verse 12, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. And so there's no doubt now for, in the mind of Paul that the whole of the Old Testament confirms God's requirement of faithfulness in including Gentiles in his redemptive purposes. And Paul's already defined for us who he thinks those people are. And so when he's talking to these Romans, he says to them in verse 13, May that God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Because by the power of Holy Spirit, you, I want you too to abound in that hopefulness. In the gospel, They're, Romans are mostly Gentiles. And so Paul's talking to them as this mixed group of Jew and Gentile. And so I am asking us, do we see what Paul's saying here? The, you who are Romans, you who are from Georgia, you who are from Arkansas, you who are Barbar, your Gentile joy, peace, faith, hope depends on God's covenant faithfulness through the work of Christ. That's the only hope. So when you see the gospel reach another nation, like one in Vietnam, you see that as a confirmation, a certification of the faithfulness of God through the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's who God is and that's what he does. That's what he's promised to do. That he's going to reach beyond into unreached Gentile nations, uh, beyond majority languages, and vindicate and certify that his covenant character through the gospel is actually what he says that it is. That his promises to Jews and Gentiles alike are true. I remember when we were translating and teaching the book of Ruth for the first time to previously unreached Atta believers in New Guinea, and they were hearing about this Moabite woman who was not from the line of Abraham, but who went to the nation of Israel and declared her allegiance to be protected under the wings of the Yahweh God, the Redeemer, the faithful one of Israel and they saw themselves connected more to her than any other character at that point because they were in that position. They were barbar, they were people who lived from other ethnic and linguistic identities and by God's mercy in Christ had had the privilege of being brought into the covenant name and the covenant faithfulness of God, Yahweh God. And so Gentiles, I say, and, and I assume most of us in here actually represent Gentiles, by the way, I assume that's true whether we're previously unreached majority languages or whether we're from Barbar languages, uh, our submission to God by believing in Christ's salvation or sacrifice for sin is our only hope too. Isn't that right? That only if we trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him that we can find salvation. That's true for all of us. There is no other way. This ruling root of Jesse who gives hope to us, who gives us an eager expectation and confidence based in his faithful and truthful character and his perfect record of covenant faithfulness to all of humanity. God has proven himself faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ and that faithful promise extends to Gentile nations. Secondly, and now we'll move much more quickly, um, Paul's ministry to unreached Gentiles certifies God's faithfulness in Christ, number one. Secondly, in verses 14 to 21, The gospel validates Paul's priority for the unreached because only a gospel to the unreached confirms Paul's fruitfulness in Christ. So confirming Paul's fruitfulness in Christ. And we're just going to read uh, from 14 down. And you can hear the argument, I think, clearly enough. I don't think you need a lot of explanation, but we'll stop some along the way as we do that. So verse 14 down says this. This is Paul talking to the Romans. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, my Roman brothers and sisters. It's a generic term. That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. In other words, Romans, you're reached um, Gentiles now. That's what Paul's saying to them. In fact, he makes that clearer. He says, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And Paul takes up a very sacred way of describing that ministry responsibility in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So Paul very clearly states the intensity of his focus on nothing except the gospel for unreached Gentiles. And he, as he interacts with the Romans, even though he didn't personally plant ch- churches among them, as we'll see, He intends for the Romans to participate in the fellowship of the gospel so he can go beyond them. Paul's main interest is not the Romans at this point because he sees them as a fruitful representation of reachedness, as reached Gentiles, and he wants to go beyond them. He wants them to be maximally fruitful as a holy offering to God because their fruitfulness confirms his ministry responsibility. It confirms his fruitfulness. Are you following me there? When he sees unreached Gentiles fruitfully living out their life in Christ, then Paul himself is also fruitful. And so Paul, that's why Paul says here in verse 19, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now just, I'm just going to tell you right now, that's an astounding claim. Okay, that's an astounding claim. Because Jerusalem is the starting point of Paul's three missionary journeys. Illyricum around the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean, just think of it as shaped like a circle, for lack of um, a picture. And Paul starts down here in Jerusalem on the coast in Israel. And he goes all the way around up to Illyricum. Now, Rome is just here. And Spain is over here. So Paul is completing his circle of responsibility to link up the chain of those who have heard the name of Christ. But he makes the claim... He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Now, Paul had taken three missionary journeys. There were a lot of people who lived between Jerusalem and Illyricum. And what that shows to me is that Paul's focus was not some kind of a saturation principle. Paul was not saying that. There's now a church in every village. There's now a church in every third village. There's now a church in every fifth village. There's now a church in every tenth village. That's not what he's saying. In fact, Paul is emphasizing that ethnic cultural perspective of those nations who are scattered around the Mediterranean, who are forming a chain of opportunity for Paul to go to Spain. That's what he's saying. In fact, one other commentator here says that for Paul, the message had been proclaimed and the church planted in each of the nations north and west across Asia Minor and the Greek Peninsula. That was what Paul was saying. And so in Paul's mind, a maturing church established among each of these ethnic identities meant they were reached sufficiently to propagate truth for themselves and others. That they were able to name Christ because they understood the gospel and they were growing as his disciples as maturing believers in faith. And so Paul, as he describes that then, that's why he continues the way he does in verse 20. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul now clarifies completely that his fruitfulness is represented by his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has never been previously named. There is no foundation in place there that those who never have been told of him will see and those who've never heard will understand. Now, just to be clear, when we couple that statement of Paul about naming Christ with his description of what an unreached Gentile was, a Greek and a barbar, and with his personal sense of responsibility to proclaim the gospel to those ones who are culturally and linguistically distinct. I'm left with one conclusion, that Paul's focus in church planting ministry toward unreached Gentiles was because Paul wanted to see Christ proclaimed in every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's that's the conclusion that I draw from Paul here. For Paul, that principle of priority flows logically from his argument here, and I believe for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ represents, I would say our highest uh, end of or pointed priority as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Where does that priority fit in for us? Um, I can tell you, I've lived in countries around the world. I've learned three majority languages besides English to sufficient level to teach God's truth in them. I've learned two minority languages besides English sufficiently to teach the Word of God in them, and I can tell you that there is no other barrier to the gospel of seeing, hearing, and understanding than language. There is no greater barrier to the gospel, and I can say that again another way. No more significant barrier exists to seeing and hearing and understanding the message of the power of God for salvation in Christ than that barbar reality than speaking a language and living in a cultural environment where Christ has not been previously named. And so, in the way in which I understand Paul's set of priorities, as he goes around the Mediterranean and wants to move beyond the Reach Romans to to other uh, Gentile nations, my conclusion is that if Paul were able to spend time with us, that he would challenge us toward a fruitfulness that includes a focus on that priority of those 3,100 languages of the world who've yet to hear the truth of the gospel of Christ where he's not known and named. Uh, that At least for Paul, that represents his confidence in the faithfulness of God. That represents his confidence in his own fruitfulness. And so for Paul, all other opportunities flowed out of the wake of that spearhead of responsibility for him. That all the others that he strengthened behind him and left to strengthen behind him out of the wake of him carving a, a forward progress towards unreached Gentiles. So in Paul's gospel ministry, and, and this will move quickly again, he, he certifies God's faithfulness in Christ in his unreached focus. He confirms Paul, his own fruitfulness. Paul's fruitfulness in Christ is confirmed through his unreached focus. And finally and quickly, he states that he prioritizes the unreached in order to complete Christian fellowship in Christ. And again, uh, we'll move very quickly here. Did you, did you know, in fact, that Paul does tell the Romans why he wrote to them? He tells them why. His primary reason is that he wants them to contribute to that chain of, of unreached Gentiles and to send him beyond themselves. That's what he wants. He hopes to enlist their help for his next church planting mission in unreached regions of what is now modern-day Spain. He says that in verses 22 down, and again, the argument's clear here. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. I've been preoccupied. I've wanted to come see you all, but I've been preoccupied because I've been ministering to unreached Gentiles, that's what I've been doing. So I haven't been able to do that, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, again, fulfilling my ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum, that's what I've been doing, I um, have long, and since I have longed for so many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So to get past where you are now. Um, And to be helped on my journey there by you, for once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, Romans. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul doesn't want to get hampered or hindered by those who would hold him captive in Jerusalem because he wants to be able to continue his ministry work. And so he asks the Romans to pray for him. That my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you and with joy be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul explains here, as I've said, that he was hindered from coming because of his previous ministry, and now he wants to prioritize that work in Spain, but he wants to complete that chain of fellowship. I I see that Paul's route around the Mediterranean as a chain of fellowship. He's He's linking up parts of the chain so that this chain is strong of what now was unreached and what now is reached, so that he can be sent through a strong linkage of fellowship to those who are yet unreached in Spain. And, and I, the, the blessing and irony is that those unreached Gentiles in Achaia and Macedonia are now the ones sending money back to Jerusalem to support the churches where Paul started his ministry in the first place. So there's a way in which the, the process of linkage of fellowship re, returns to Jerusalem to help them. And so for Paul, he wants that chain of nations, if you will, of previously unleaked Gentiles to slingshot him beyond Rome so that he can go to the yet unreached regions of Spain on the periphery now of the Mediterranean world. This is, Spain is considered to be the, the terminus point of what was then the Roman Empire. And so who knows what Paul's going to encounter there? We don't know if Paul made it to Spain. Some say he did, some say he didn't. Who knows what cultural and linguistic diversity he would have encountered there on the edge of the known world at the time. So, friends, as we close, I ask us together as believers, what is it that we prioritize in church planting ministry? What is it that we prioritize? First, just to say, I don't see evidence that Paul did anything but church planting work. That's what Paul did. He strengthened believers and he planted churches in, as a result of um, the relationship that he had with them. Second, I don't see evidence that Paul himself did work, except that which strengthened and supported his focus towards unreached Gentiles. That's what I see here. Uh, that was his purpose for strengthening those churches all the way back to Jerusalem, was to continue his progress forward. And so I just encourage us, as we think about our priorities in ministry and as folks like Jared and Kristen go out, that we remember those the bar bar. We remember those language identities in the world that are unique and that are separated from the gospel because they speak languages and live in cultural environments where the gospel is not understood? Um, Will they see? Will they hear? Will they understand? Paul believes that his priorities made it such that his ministry to the unreached certified God's faithfulness in Christ, confirmed his fruitfulness, and completed Christian fellowship. Now, here's what I'm not saying as I stop talking. Um, I'm not saying that other kinds of gospel ministry shouldn't be occupying our time or not done at all. That's not what I'm saying. So I don't want you to misunderstand me. But what I am am clearly saying is that for the Apostle Paul, in principle of priority, that his focus was on those unreached Gentiles that still remained in the world. And he saw that as a connected promise that God had made all the way back to the beginning of his covenant work with his own people. And so I'm challenging us to think about the, the responsibility and opportunity. How is it that the work that swells in the wake of unreached language work supports and continues to propel the, for, the church forward in the world so that we're a part of the chain of causality that accomplishes that purpose that Jared read about in Revelation 7-9 so that all tribes, in case we didn't get it with tribes, and languages, and nations, and tongues. So we've said the same thing four ways to make sure we got the point. It's not about national borders, and it's not, no, it's nations, and tribes, and tongues, and languages, just in case we didn't get it. And that's that's what God's been about, even from the beginning, as he works through his covenant and character to faithfully redeem a people to himself. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, um, you know our hearts and you know our opportunities for involvement in your work. I I do pray that we can ultimately see ourselves as either senders or goers, that we can prioritize the kinds of investments that that we would pray that you would want us to prioritize. And so we ask you for your help in the process, that um, you'll show us the best ways to support in the wake of that kind of work going forward, to show us the best ways to support and pray and give. And for some of us to go and um, allow churches to be planted in language identities around the world where your name has not yet been named in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all of that today in the name of Christ himself, the one who sealed the covenant for us, each one of us who's in Christ has been sealed by the confirming reality of Christ's blood.